If you would, this morning, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I really believe that this text that we're in, probably for the next two, maybe even three weeks, is, I mean, this is, this is where real Christian living is. It, it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's what separates Christians from the occult and from the works religions. And we've seen up to this point, as I always reiterate, maybe for those that are, uh, are new to the study or maybe listening online for the first time, always just give us some context. I think that's so important. But we've seen that the theme of Galatians is our liberty in Christ, our freedom in Christ. If you had to pick a theme verse, it would have to be chapter 5 and verse 1 where he says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And we've seen that Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian believers because they had allowed false teachers to come in and add works to the gospel of grace, to salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And Paul spends the first four chapters destroying the arguments of these Judaizers and defending justification by faith in Christ. I won't rehash all that, uh, but by the time you get to chapter 5 and really on into chapter 6, these last two chapters of the book, he really shifts gears. And his main focus is on the implications of what we believe about salvation as individuals. And no doubt, listen, what we believe will determine our behavior. Our doctrine determines our direction. And his point that he is making is that those that have really been saved by grace, those that have really been born again and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross to save them, they are going to be the ones to serve the Lord Jesus Christ out of gladness and a grateful heart and not out of any kind of intimidation or fear uh, or fear of judgment, but out of a grateful heart serve Jesus Christ. We, we found earlier in the same chapter uh, that it is... Uh, that faith worketh by love in verse 6. The end of that verse says, faith worketh by love. That is total contradiction to what the Judaizers have taught. It is the Judaizers that will burn out because they are attempting to please God in the flesh. They are attempting to do the work of God in the flesh and talk about heaping burdens upon burdens. Not only can this dead religion, not only can these sacraments, not only can these works of the law not remove their sin, the penalty, the power, the guilt, and the shame, but it actually heaps even more burdens on top of that. Uh, That's the exact opposite of what we're going to see in our text today. Up to this point, Paul has fought against the things that will enslave, false gospels, and those that promote them. Salvation by works of the law, the works of the flesh, sin, etc., But in this text, I believe this is one of the most important texts in the New Testament. Listen, it's all the Word of God. It's all valuable. It's all relevant. But but I do think, at least in this is Brandon here. This is not Bible. Uh, But I'm just saying, in my humble opinion, I I think this this is one of the pinnacles. This is one of the mountaintops of the Christian New Testament. 
of what we're going to read today because it tells us how to live free. I want to be free, don't you? I want to live free. And I'm not just talking about living in a free country. Listen, I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have. But I want you to understand something. It's possible to live in a free country and still be a slave to sin. But it's also possible to live under a tyrannical dictatorship and communism and things of that nature and live free. Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We're going to talk about Christian liberty and the freedom in the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is a life of freedom. And everything else besides that involves bondage of some kind. The fruit of the Spirit are the traits of someone who is living a life of freedom in Christ. So with that in mind, let's read our central text this morning. I'll, I'll read quite a few verses just for the sake of context, but every point we're going to have is going to come specifically from verse 22. Um, let's begin back in verse 16 for sake of context. He said, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or made clear is what that means, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 22 begins with that great word of contrast. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm so unworthy to be a servant, much less a son much less a preacher of the gospel. And I just pray you'd empty me of sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit. You know my own weaknesses. You know my own struggles, my own burdens. And God, I just pray that Christ would be magnified today. Lord, that, uh, that we would really learn and understand what it means to live the Spirit-filled life because you said where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I pray that, uh, Lord, we would live just such a life. Lord, I pray for those that may be lost that don't know Christ and the pardon of their sin, that you'd save them before it's eternally too late. Lord, I pray for those that may be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they struggle with peace and assurance and joy and love and these things we're going to talk about today. God, I pray you'll open our eyes and our hearts to follow you more closely than we are right now. And we'll just thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. We're going to be looking this morning at the fruit of the Spirit. And um, I'm only going to get through three of them. The first three, I believe that they follow different categories. And so uh, I may do a three-part series. There's nine spirit fruits, if you want to call it that. And so we may do three, three, and three. Or I may 
do three today and six next. I just got to see how it works out. I don't know. But um, I, I just think these were too important just to go through uh, very quickly. And so the question that I want to wrestle with over the next two or three weeks is what are the traits of a Holy Spirit-filled life? And understand, when we're talking about the Spirit of God, uh, this is, we're talking about the third person of the Godhead, co-equal with God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. We see this clearly taught in Scripture. Uh, we're, we're, ta- we're taught in Ephesians 4, uh, 4 and verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. You can't grieve a force. You, you can't grieve an inanimate object like this. I couldn't grieve this wooden pulpit this morning. I can't grieve a chair, but you can grieve a person. Uh, we, we see in places like, um, I believe it's Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, they lied uh, to the apostles about how much money they had held back from the sale of their house. And Peter, at first, he says, why did you lie to the Holy Ghost? And then the very next thing he says, you've not lied to man but to God. See how he used Holy Ghost and God interchangeably? Um, well, I think about when Jesus told the apostles concerning the Great Commission. Uh, he said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three of those names are capitalized because it's a reference to deity. And isn't it interesting how he didn't say be baptized in the names as if they were totally separate entities? He said the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's because God is one God in being, and yet three in persons. I can't pretend to put that together logically, but as I've said before, the moment that God fits within the uh, confines of our four-pound brain, He'll cease to be God. And so that is clearly taught. Uh, all saved people have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. We've seen that. Romans 8 9 says that if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And so we're never commanded to be baptized in the Spirit because that happens the moment of salvation. For by uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. And speaking of being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Ghost, why would the Lord Jesus Christ uh, want us to be baptized in a name that is not God? I think about the work of uh, God in the resurrection of Christ. We see in Romans 10, 9, it says that if we... This is the whole verse, but this is what I want to emphasize. That in order to be saved, that we must believe that God raised Him, talking about Jesus, from the dead. Well, okay, if we have to believe that God raised Him from the dead, well, who raised Him from the dead? The book of Acts tells us that God the Father raised up His Son, Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, talking about the temple of His body. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Jesus said He raised Himself from the dead. But then in Romans 8 and verse 11, it says the Holy Spirit of God was the one that raised up Jesus. So God raised up Jesus. God the Father raised Him up. God the Son raised Him up. God the Holy Spirit raised Him up. We, We see this interchangeably. You cannot escape that. We see it in creation. So I want you to know we're talking about the Spirit of God within us, the believers, the Spirit-filled life. What are the traits of a Spirit-filled life? Well, before we're going to look at 
love, joy, and peace this morning. But before we even get to that, there's some things that we need, really need to lay the, use to lay the basic groundwork here. But uh, whereas Paul warned us about the works of the flesh, the list that we just read, he is now promoting the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the works of the flesh come naturally to us. Our hearts, our mind, our will... It's a, we're a sin factory. That's what we are. That's who we are. We're not good people. The Bible says in Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. And the problem is, and this is, I talked about this Friday night at our Knowing God Bible study. But when I was, um, when we were at the fair, and we had the table there that said, there's no such thing as a good person changed my mind. We're doing that again at the day on the quad, by the way, on Wednesday. So be praying about that. A lot of times we have good interaction with college students. And the overwhelming majority of the almost 350 people that we talked to during the four days we were there, um, when they came and talked to me, they would say, yes, there's absolutely such thing as a good person. And I said, well, what would make somebody a good person? And they go to, to naming, you know, uh, well, if somebody's honest or they're a good neighbor or, or, or they help somebody in need and and of course, those are, we've all agreed those are good things to do. And we can certainly do good things. But the very next question I ask is, well, let me ask you this. Do you think that people have done bad things in their life? And most of them, as Scott and Andy heard and Robin, they say, well, people are not perfect. They make mistakes, but they're not bad people. But that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what plays out in reality. Listen, mistakes is when you trip and fall or you spill a drink. That, that's an innocent, honest mistake. But people do bad things because they want to. I mean, if you hold them up to the Ten Commandments, as I said many times, we've all fallen short of that. We've lied because we want to. We see it as beneficial to us. That makes us liars. We've put other things before God. That makes us idolaters. We've taken God's name in vain in some way. That makes us blasphemers. We've lusted in our heart. Well, that makes us adulterers in our heart. We can go on down the list. We're all guilty before a holy God. And here's the million-dollar question. Can the good things we do erase the bad things that we do? And the answer is no. Because our sin is a legal offense against God, and obedience can erase uh, disobedience. That's not even true in the state of Utah. You get convicted of a crime, you get punished for that crime. You don't get a pass for the laws you didn't break. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. And so when we talk about the works of the flesh, we're talking about this is who we are. Our hearts are sin factories. Our minds are sin factories. And God bears that out clearly in the Scripture. Notice He didn't say the works of the Spirit. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. And the only way that fruit is made is by, is by abiding in a living source. A, a banana tree grows bananas because the sap flows through that tree. And the fruit is a result of the overflow of the sap. That's it. You say, how can you walk in the Spirit? Be plugged into the source. Uh, it's not... An, um, uh, when we look at fruit, um, it, it comes simply out of abiding in the source of life, which of course is Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so this is so important to get this before we start walking through this list. 
uh, is so important to understand that this isn't a checklist for you to try harder. Just get that out of your mind, okay? Because here's the problem. How are you going to love like God without being God? How are you going to have joy in the Lord without the Lord? And I know that y'all are just so patient naturally, right? You're just long-suffering. You just woke up. You were born being long-suffering, right? So how are you going to do these things just by trying harder? You know, it's like, it's like going up to the top of a skyscraper and telling somebody, hey, look, if you jump off this skyscraper, if you just flap your arms really hard, you're going to fly, okay? You, listen, you can flap your arms till they fall out of joint. You ain't going to fly because that's not, that's not who you are. That's not your nature. You're not able to do that. We have to be plugged into a source that is not us. We can't walk in the Spirit without being plugged into the Spirit. And so when we go through this list, this is not a checklist to try harder. It's a call to become more submissive and dependent upon the Spirit of God within you if you're saved. Now, I will say this, though. This list is a great indicator, uh, not of how much that you have of the Spirit, but how much the Spirit has of you. And I like what Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20 says. It says, And be not drunk with wine, where it is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the contrast here between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit is speaking of being controlled by the Spirit or under the influence of the Spirit. Now, understand, a lot of charismatics have destroyed this verse. They, they try to make it to where, you know, well, if you're under the influence of the Spirit, you know, you're going to fall out and you're going to bark like a dog and you're going to speak gibberish. That's nonsense. This is not about uh, losing control. It's about having it. It's not about uh, being drunken. It's about being sober in the Spirit. And, but the idea here, the, the, the contrast that Paul is making is that we need to be under the influence of the Spirit. We need to be controlled by the Spirit in order to bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's the idea here. That, that speaks of how much dependency we need on the Spirit of God. With these things in mind, let's look at these first three, love, joy, and peace. First of all, let's just go in order. He, he started with love, and that's what we'll do. Verse 22, with the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, this is important to know this, but we understand that the New Testament was translated from Greek to English, and there are a few words in Greek that actually speak of love. It's different types of love. But at the very pinnacle, the very top, is agape. This is agape love. This comes from the word uh, agape. Uh, it's even higher than phileo, which is a brotherly love. Uh, agape is not just a feeling. You see, uh, I think it's so important uh, as we go through life or we read the Scriptures, whatever the case may be, it's very important to define words. Let the Bible, let the Word of God define words for you. Don't be content just to live in such a cliché society with a cliche Christianity, with bumper sticker theology. 
I mean, you hear the phrase, love is... Have you ever heard, love is love? I've heard it so many times, I, I just can't even stand it. And I, I always say, yeah, that, that's true. You know, love is love, but what is love? Well, love is love. Well, okay, what is love? We can, we can go around in circles all we want to. What does it mean? And agape... Listen, it's not just a mushy feeling. It is an act of the will. Agape love is a choice to love, expecting nothing in return. Agape is the same love that we find about God in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, for God so agape the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the love of God the Father that gave His Son, God the Son, as a love gift to the world, knowing they would reject Him, knowing they would spit in His face, knowing that they would beat Him with the cat of nine tails till His organs were hanging out, knowing that they would rip the hair out of His face and beat Him and uh, place a crown of thorns on His head and nail Him to a wooden cross. God gave His Son knowing what the result would be. Would any of you give your children for somebody like that? This is a love that we can't, we can't even comprehend, this kind of love. This agape love. This is a love that's foreign to us. This is not a natural love. It's a supernatural love. First uh, John 4 and verse 10, we find another um, place where agape is used. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That's the satisfactory payment. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And in order to love like God, we must be full of the spirit of the God of love. And only someone living in freedom... Man, this is so important. Only someone living in freedom of the spirit can love someone like that. Loving someone with no strings attached, expecting nothing in return. Are you kidding me? Try to write a book about that. Try to write a self-help book on love and relationships about that. That's exactly what the love of God is, a love that expects nothing in return, no strings attached. That's a powerful love that draws from a supernatural source. Listen, that's not just a horizontal love that goes from person to person. That's a vertical love that comes from God to us, and then drawing from that fountain, we can love outwardly. That's the only way that that can possibly work. Because it's not within us. I think about 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, the King James uses the word charity. And, and this is interesting to me. Charity is also agape. Same exact Greek word. But I believe the emphasis there in charity, charity kind of has uh, the connotation of being love in action. It is love that does something. Um, it says, charity suffereth long. It is kind and envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. It's not full of pride. Does not uh, behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. That is agape love. Now, think about this. Imagine loving your spouse with an agape love. Instead of loving them for what you get in return, 
You are loving them with the love of God. Instead of loving this way for the sole purpose of giving love back this way, now you can love beginning here, coming to here, and going out this way. It's almost like a triangle. I love it. The thought of marriage is a triangle. God at the top going down to husband and wife. And you want to know what a good marriage is. It's where you have two spouses that are just like this with God. They're seeking God. They're dependent upon God. They're in the Word of God. They're submitted to the Spirit of God. And they're already receiving love this way, and then they get to love that way. That's the most amazing marriage that you'll ever find. Uh, Unfortunately, most people have no love going this way at all, so they put their spouse up on a pedestal they don't belong on. Listen, i got news for you. Your spouse can't make you happy. Your your spouse can't bring you any lasting joy. And if you put put your absolute faith and trust in them to please you and completely meet your needs, you're going to be sadly mistaken. And by the way, you can't make your spouse happy either. Uh, You just need to get off that pedestal. You're putting weight on your shoulders you can never bear. I know that you probably feel like you've got an S on your chest and you keep a cape up in your closet, but you can't do that. You can't do it. Um, That can only come from God. It's got to be a a vertical love. Imagine loving your spouse, not for what you get in return, but you're loving them with the love of God. And that's that's what brings you happiness, is to love others like God has loved you. Love your co-workers like Christ and love your family like Christ and even love your enemies like Christ. We know that we don't have that within us. And so... Here's the thing about that. Uh, You say, well, that's dangerous. They they might take advantage of you. They may hurt you, and that is true. But here's the thing. You're not drawing from their fruit. You're not drawing from their well. You're plugged into another source. (laughs) That This kind of love is completely opposite of the love that the Judaizers taught. They taught that if you do certain things, that God will love you. Do this, and God will love you. That is the religion of the cults. Abide by these rules. Mark these uh, checklists, uh, and God will love you. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says in Christ, and only in Christ, are you loved and accepted by God. Now go and do good works. We don't work in order to be saved. We work because we are saved. We're not trying to earn brownie points with God. Jesus Christ already earned my salvation. That's the greatest news on planet earth, and it's true. And listen, it it takes boldness to live with that kind of love and forgiveness. It, It takes a certain amount of boldness to live in the freedom and forgiveness of God's love and His gospel. Um, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now listen, this is important to know this. The context that John is speaking of in 1 John chapter 4 is the fear of the judgment and the wrath of God. He says that perfect love casteth out fear. In other words, if you're perfectly trusting in Jesus Christ, you're not going to fear the judgment of God because Jesus Christ is enough. The cross is enough. The blood is enough. And once you really believe that, You don't have to worry about all these man-made systems. You don't have to worry about the Judaizers. You don't have to worry about the cults. 
You have to worry about their system and all the things they say you have to do to be right with God. You don't have to worry about that. And so, it, you know, but I tell you, it takes a certain level of, of courage to place your eternal soul into the hands of Christ and Christ alone, to put your faith and trust in Him and His finished work on the cross. The Judaizers were telling these Galatian converts that the work was Christ, you know, it was needed, definitely, but that it was not enough. Um, we, we talked about a little bit in our Knowing God Bible study on Friday, and I told you that I've talked to a lot of people um, in my ministry, a lot of people here and even, even quite a few over there, that uh, believe that they're saved. I've had people say these words to me, that their salvation is based on some kind of combination of grace and works. But listen, even that phrase is a contradiction in terms because the textbook definition of grace is undeserved, unmerited favor with God. So if you have to do something in order to earn God's favor, in order to deserve God's grace you have completely butchered the definition of grace. If, if, it's, if grace is undeserved favor, and you do works to try to deserve and earn the favor of God, it's not salvation by grace. It's an attempt to be saved by your own works and your own goodness instead of trusting in the goodness of Christ. That's exactly what it is. When somebody says that I'm saved by grace and works, it's like saying, I believe in hot ice, or I believe in cold fire. Those are con- it's an oxymoron. It's contradiction in terms. And so I want, I want you to understand this. Yes, the, the Judaizers said, you know, Jesus and all He did, yeah, he, that's necessary, but here's really where it's at. It's what you do. See, he just, he just opened the door. He just gave you an opportunity so He can pass you the baton, and you got it the rest of the way. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Um. I, you know, I can identify with this because, listen, I remember how I felt when I forsook what I had been taught and put my faith in Christ alone what I, over what I had been taught in the Church of Christ. Uh, the Church of Christ teaches uh, that you must be water baptized in order to be saved. Um, in other words, you, I mean, you cannot be saved without being dunked. That's it. And more specifically, they said you had to be baptized into their church. You had to have a church of Christ baptism, or you could not be saved. Now, they talk about Jesus. They talk about the cross. They talk about grace, and all, but it's totally meaningless. It's a nothing burger. Because what actually matters is you've been baptized into our church. You've got our name uh, behind you. You're under our umbrella. As I said before, the Judaizers would have said, Jesus is the way to salvation, but we're the way to Jesus. And so uh, it's totally different here than walking in the Spirit and being free in the Spirit. Uh, because here's the thing, um, you, you can't enslave or intimidate someone who's walking freely in the love of Christ and the filling of the Spirit. I remember when I heard the true gospel for the first time, I was 14 years old, I had a friend invite me to church. And I realized that I was lost and undone. On my way to hell, I was a sinner and that, that that water that I got dunked in did not wash away my sin. I went down, instead of going down the old man and coming up the new man, I went down the old man and came up the wet old man. There was nothing different about my heart, my mouth, my music, my life, my desires, my lust. I was the same person because there's not enough water in the Pacific Ocean to wash away your sin. Only the blood of Christ can do that. 
And so for me, when I heard the gospel, I knew it was true. I knew it was true. I knew there was nothing I had done to make myself right with God. But there was still that fear. Like, what if it's not enough? Like, what if... What if I, I need to really, what if I need to trust Jesus and my baptism? Like, surely, you know, when I add them together, they're better than just Jesus. But that's not true. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And so, I remember how that felt. But when I talk about these things, living in the Spirit, look, this isn't speaking of a life of sin or a life of sin. It's a life, it's a life of sanctification. Jesus said that all the law was fulfilled in these two commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Um, Never taking into consideration how that neighbor might love us back. The love of God enables us to forgive. It enables us to love those who despise us, to be free of all the guilt and fear of judgment. Uh, The Judaizers hate this, Because such free people can't be enslaved by fear and intimidation. Can't do it. I don't need need man-made systems. I got Jesus. You don't have to be put under that yoke. Uh, This world system wants to bring us under condemnation. Uh, And even even certain things that we wouldn't realize that are actually religious systems designed to put us under bondage. I think about this uh, critical race theory that's really being pushed uh, in the schools right now. Um, I actually, a lot of times I'll study things to try to better understand their argument. And I've read several books on CRT, including uh, Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. Uh, I call that the KJV of CRT. I mean, that's the pinnacle work. And, and it's, it, listen, it's a theology book. It tells us that because we were born white, we were automatically born racist, and there's no redemption. We can never be forgiven, and we can never be not racist. <laughs> you know what they're doing? They're putting people under a system by which they have to say, do all these things, and then you'll be approved by society, friend. Listen, my sins are under the blood. So I don't have to be put up under that, and you don't either. Um, and so uh, we don't have to be a slave to that. Um, when the world system does that, you just remind them that it's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I love that. The love of God in and through us is a sure sign that someone is walking in the freedom and the filling of the Spirit. But then secondly, I may only get through two today, probably two. I said I'd do it in maybe three weeks, maybe nine weeks. (laughs) But let's look at joy this morning. I'm only going to do two and I'll be done because I really want to give them their necessary time. But the second one is joy. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it says joy. I love what John MacArthur said about joy. He says, Joy is a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. It is a sense of well-being experienced by one who knows all is well between himself and the Lord. True joy cannot be found outside of God. Uh, I like what the uh, Westminster Confession says, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, In Scripture, this is really important. In Scripture, joy is almost always somehow associated with being in the presence of God. Uh, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Psalm 16.11, thou would show me the path of life. 
In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Nehemiah 8 and verse 10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalm 32 and verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Habakkuk 3, uh, verses 17 and 18, it says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I could have listed dozens more, but I think you get the idea that joy is tied to being in the presence of God. The Lord wants us to be happy in Him, by the way. He wants us to find joy unspeakable in Him. He doesn't want us to be miserable. Sometimes we think it's a Christian virtue to be miserable all the time, to beat ourselves up and feel guilty over every single thing. Uh, But that's what Satan wants. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. Um, The exact opposite of what Satan, the world, and false religion would have for us. And let me say this too. Did you know that it also takes a certain amount of boldness to live joyful and happily? Did you know it, it actually, you have to be bold to be happy? You, it takes courageousness to be happy. It takes courage to be happy. You say, well, how does that even make sense? Um, I love this. Uh, I'm currently reading a book right now uh, called Letting Go of the Guilt by Valerie Burton. She's a Christian counselor. And I could have quoted like three or four pages of this thought, but I just took bits and pieces. I want you to hear this. Um, She said, happiness requires courage. It requires effort. It takes tenacity and perseverance. It takes hope, but hopes can be dashed. Disappointment is always a possibility. She goes on to talk about how as a girl it seemed like her life was just plagued by one thing after another. Her grandfather died, then her grandmother died. Uh, Then her parents uh, separated. Then they lost their house. Then her parents finally got divorced. And it it became such a pattern that it's like every time she became hopeful, something else was destroyed in her life. And she realized as an adult that she got used to not being happy. Because, hey, if you never get your hopes up, they can't ever be dashed. Just, Just live in the gutter a little bit, and then you won't be so devastated when bad things happen. That's why it takes courage to live happily and joyfully. Um, She goes on to say, and I quote, Happiness for me was risky. It meant risking disappointment. Fully embracing happiness meant expecting that happiness would hang around when I didn't really believe that it would. The higher my happiness level, the more devastating I feared the fall would be. So if I could just find a way to bring my happiness down a few notches, I could feel a bit safer. I could cushion the inevitable fall I so anxiously yet subconsciously feared. The safety of unhappiness is the security of a comfort zone. But it isn't actually safety, it's the feeling of safety. You might not like being unhappy, but at least you know what's coming. You know what arguments to expect, whom to appease and how you will feel, of actions you'll need to take. Ridiculous as it may sound, we we can become so comfortable with the absence of happiness that when there is no reason to be unhappy, we manufacture one. Worry, discontentment, envy, blame, drama, and yes, guilt. Who would ever thought that unhappiness could be a safe place? Who ever thought it could be a comfort zone? But really, if you think about it like this, it makes perfect sense because as Christians, we live a life of faith. We live a life of faith. 
Friend, if I live by sight and feeling, and if my wife lived by sight and by feeling, it would drive us insane. But friend, we can't live by sight. We live by faith of the One who's got it all within the palm of His hand. And I, listen, I don't know how this life turns out. I don't know if my wife ever has another day of relief on this earth. I don't know if she has another good day. But I do know this. I've read the back of the book and we win because He wins. And I do know there is coming a time where we will not know suffering anymore. <laughs> I do know there's a time where we'll see our loved ones where there's going to be no more parting. I do know one day that I'll get to see the one that died for me and I'll get to see the nail prints in His hands and His feet and I'll get to thank Him for everything that He did. And when we, friend, when we've been there 10 million years looking back, we'll be thinking, now what, what was it way back then that bothered you so bad? What, what was that trial that just kept you up at night? What rattled you so badly? What worried you so horribly? I don't know. I don't remember. You see, that's, that's the, the freedom that comes with faith. You see, listen, there, there's things in people in my life that really add to my life. Couldn't you say the same thing? Man, it hurts when we lose a loved one. There's no doubt about that. It hurts when we go through trials. It hurts when we see our loved ones suffering. It hurts and it's worrisome when we worry about the finances and all the trials that we face. But listen, we even though those things hurt, we don't have to be devastated by those things. My joy doesn't come from those things. I was reading an article just this week where the... Uh, I believe it might have been the New York Times. It wasn't written this week. It was, I read it this week. It's an old article. But it talks about how it's been confirmed that at least two millionaires jumped from the skyscrapers of the stock exchange in New York when the stock market crashed. Jumped out the window. As soon as they saw the market, just jumped out. Why? Because their whole life was wrapped up in that. Their life died when the stock market crashed. Friend, we, we can't find our substance and our joy and everything that defines us. We can't, we can't find them in temporal things. You name one thing in this life that can't be taken from you today. What about your spouse? You guarantee they're going to wake up with you tomorrow morning? What about your money? You telling me you're guaranteed it's going to be in the bank tomorrow? Are you telling me that we know for sure that we're not going to be at war tomorrow? You know for sure that your house couldn't burn in a fire uh, or that even you yourself couldn't be taken from this life in a car. You don't know that. That's why we can't find our joy in the temporary. We have to find it in Lord Jesus Christ and every day is just one step closer to Him. <laughs> every day. Yes, those things hurt. But friend, if you don't find your hope and joy in those things, you won't be devastated when they're gone. That's why Job was able to say, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen, it takes courage to live like that. I don't know what tomorrow's going I don't know what bad things wait around the corner. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but it's okay because I know the one who holds tomorrow. That's where our joy comes from because He's the God that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must find our joy in the Lord because He never changes. He's never going to die. And He promised to never leave us nor forsake us. True joy doesn't come because of our circumstances, but in spite of them. I couldn't help but think about when I read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. 
You remember her family hid Jews behind the wall in their home and they finally got caught and they were arrested and um, her and her sister were taken to Robinsbrook uh, concentration camp and her dad was taken somewhere else. She never saw him again. He had died. But uh, she, she talked about one of the most amazing parts of the story to me was when they were at Robinsbrook and of course the Germans didn't allow Bibles or or any kind of Bible studies or anything, but it's, she managed to smuggle a Bible into that concentration camp. She said it was more precious to her than gold. And she would gather the women around, and, and she would have Bible studies in a little open barn area they had in a loft, and they had uh, hay that they would sit on. And, and she was so terrified that the Nazis were going to come take her Bible and possibly kill her or whatever the case may be. But she went ahead and did it anyway and hoped they would stay away and... And as she was, you know, teaching these ladies and going through the Scripture, she saw the Nazi soldiers just outside looking in, but they never came in. And the whole time, she's kind of knocking fleas off of her leg while she's talking. And they were just kind of miserable. There are fleas everywhere. But then she realized, that's why the soldiers weren't coming in. So she said, thank God for the fleas that allowed us to have this Bible study. Friend, you'll never know how much you need Him until He's all you got. That's where our joy comes from. We find our joy in temporal things. We're bound for despair. Jobs, career, loved ones, money, fame, none of these things are going to last. What are you investing in? What are you putting your hopes and dreams and joys into? If it's anything other than Christ, then you're building upon sinking sand. I've got a a dear friend of mine who told me not long ago, his father-in-law is very wealthy. Even in retirement, they've, they've got more money they could ever spend. They could never spend the amount of money he's got coming in. And you know what? He's miserable. Because here recently he had a stroke, and even though he got through all that fine, he realizes that he's, you know, he's coming into the end of his life. He knows he doesn't have very long, and everything he's worked for is about to be gone. <laughs> what a horrible way to live. Hey, listen, for the believer, when we die, it's all just beginning. Living joyfully and happily in this fallen world is a sure proof that someone is free and full of the Spirit of God. Is that you today? Have you been set free from your sin? You've been set free from the guilt and the shame and the bondage. Are you living free and full in the Spirit? Or are you just getting by? Are you still bound? Are you still in bondage? Because if you're abiding in Him, He will bear fruit in you. You will experience love and joy and peace and all these things mentioned. Would you stand this morning as she comes? Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your word again. Lord, what a, what a needed passage, what a needed text in my own life, God. Even as, as we 